0: everybody and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here and I am excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Rennie Moon, who I was recently connected to through both of our, uh, we've been both working in medical freedom for some time now, and I'm really excited to connect with her because she has a fascinating story, some really interesting input over what's been going on over the past couple of years, and so forth. So I am excited to introduce to you Dr. Rennie Moon. Hey, Rennie.
1: Hey, how are you? Thanks for um, having me on.
0: Thank you so much for being here. You have such a fascinating story, and I'm just excited to share some of that with our listeners today. So before we get started, we're going to dig into your background and some of the things that we've been seeing happening in medicine and that kind of thing. But will you just tell us a little bit about what type of doctor you are, kind of where you've been practicing over the last little while and so forth, just to give us that little bit of context?
1: Yeah, thanks. So I am a pediatrician. I've been practicing uh, on the West Coast in Washington State for Oh, gosh, I guess about 18 years now. Um, and uh, I'm certified, board certified in both pediatric hospital medicine, as well as in general pediatrics. So awesome.
0: And one of the things that makes you incredibly unique is your family background and where your family came from and so forth. So we you tell us a little bit about that? Because it, it definitely helps us better understand some of your perspectives as well.
1: Yeah, so my parents, my, my dad was actually born in Buenos Aires, and my mom was born in Prague. And they both uh, met when they were living behind the Iron Curtain in Prague. And so the, the Iron Curtain, for those those folks who may not remember quite what that was, it was a really a huge um, electric fence, prison wall that extended up from the Scandinavian countries down through Central Europe and kept my relatives really basically in a prison under communism. So they grew up under that system and were able to escape when they were in their early 20s. And I was very fortunate. I grew up feeling my whole life how, how lucky I was to have been born in America where we, we were free.
0: Sure, um, are, your, are your parents still living? My dad passed last year.
1: Uh, my mom is still alive. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I'm
0: curious about their thoughts and perspectives on kind of where things have been moving in the United States over the past, I don't know, decade or so we'll say.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I love, I love, I love both my parents that my, like I said, my dad has passed. My mom is still alive and she, I have to tease her a little bit. I, when I grew up, I grew up just a proud american you know american freedom we're so lucky that was just drilled into me you know love for america love for the american flag and everything that that stands for and as as i was growing up my mom always talked about well we need to get some you know some farm property or we need to get this or we need to get that for when times change And like most kids, I kind of, I kind of laughed at her. I'm like, what is wrong with my mom? You know, why is she so paranoid? Our government's Mm -hmm. great. We're fine. Mm -hmm. And so she really, so I kind of teased her about it. You know, like, really? Like, you think we need a goat and a cow and, you know, no offense to goats and cows, but I just didn't see that as something that we needed to somehow protect our family until, until recently. And she, she's always warned me, you know, things can turn things can turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. And the, the scariest part about what she um, talks about is that when she was in high school under communism, they taught them, they literally had classes and they taught them how to take down a country just like America. And that involved, there's a whole list of things I had her outline just so I would understand better, but you know, it involves breaking apart the family foundation causing chaos and uh, groups to hate one another, causing lawlessness, you know, just really destabilizing the nation so that ultimately you can you, meaning the communists, can come in and then pretend to be the the you know the saviors. The good guys, of that right? Nation. The saviors. The good yeah. guys, right? <laughs> and so so really all this was she she was taught all this decades ago when she lived under communism. Now we have of course, now our own twists with it, with social Mm -hmm. media and all the other stuff that they couldn't have foreseen, but the basic platform is still there. So, you know, I look at her and I say, what are you, what are you thinking? And she says, well, this is exactly what they taught us. This is exactly what we were taught again, minus the, the, you know, the modern day kind of aspects of it. But even she is horrified at how how rapidly we're falling, you know, Mm -hmm. she says, I never, even, even though I was always worried about it, I never thought it would happen in America either. And I never thought it would happen this quickly. So she's, she's horrified.
0: That's just it, right? The quickness of it. And um, you know, I think people have a hard time recognizing some of these trends because the flavor for lack of a better term is a little bit different, but everything that you just described we've been seeing happening over the past two years for sure and even and even prior to that um Mm -hmm. as far as the the pitting the people against each other and how
1: effective that's been and and so um yeah and she she says you know the the trouble is is that the American people have always had the not not the ability that's the wrong word but they have always trusted their government she's Mm -hmm. like "I, I come from a government we could not trust. And so I've never had as much as I, she's loved being an American and has fully embraced it and, and, you know, loved it. She's always had that little bit of like, you know, distrust because she knows what can happen. And her, her point I think is very valid because I I never had that distrust of my government. I grew up very, you know, like I said, very pro-American, very pro-government, pro-everything that America stands for all the freedom. And but she's always been a little bit distrustful of things because she knows how quickly it can turn. So right. the, the, one, the one fault she says the American people have is that we're too, we're, we just don't understand. We're too nice. We're too complacent. We're too uh, not understanding of what can, what can happen and how quickly this can fall.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I think I've realized is because I've because I recognized it in myself really until the past five years or so, I was very disengaged and just assumed that things were as I was told they were. And that, you know, the government was generally good. And there might be some intricacies that I didn't agree with, or, you know, policies that I didn't love, but that everyone had great intentions. And that really, we were working toward what everyone felt was best for everyone. And I think a lot of people have that, perspective and it it causes us to disengage and not necessarily pay attention to what's actually going on and and certainly i i we can take it too far as well but i think it's incredibly important for us to be informed citizens and to know what's going on and to be able to collaborate in order to exercise you know we're the one government that is built on limited government and the, the role of the government is to protect the freedoms of our citizens and to really stand on that again because I think we've could just kind of become very complacent in our comfort and it's 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 very real like your mama shared that that things are changing quickly so
1: yeah um, the analogy I w- the analogy I would have is just you know like driving on a road that's against a cliff. Like you have to have control of the wheel of your vehicle. You can't just let it start to, you know, to drift a little bit to the side, or you're going to eventually go off that cliff. Right. Mm -hmm. And we, as a nation have, have tried to, I think, be too politically correct all the time and too not wanting to, you know, not wanting to rub people the wrong way. And we've allowed it to drift and then it drifts some more and then it drifts some more. And pretty soon, we're, we're heading off that cliff and, and no one has corrected that vehicle. And, and that's, that's kind of the analogy I have. I, um, I think back to when I was 11, I had my first trip back to my mom's former homeland and um, visited my relatives and grandparents and everything went through, had the train literally went through the iron curtain. So I saw the barbed wire. I saw the, the watchtowers and the guards and the dogs and the guns and the, you know, the whole thing. And I, I remember sitting with my grandma in her apartment, and she was listening to the, it was called Hlas Ameriki, which is the voice of America. And at the time, America was piping in the real news to my relatives, to, my, to their whole country, because they didn't have real news, they had propaganda. Um, so I heard propaganda back then with my grandma um, not from America, but from what she'd been listening to on on the the Czech radio, and then I heard the Americans, my countrymen, piping in the real news, and so I, I heard the difference between propaganda and the real news. And I, so I've I've been seeing it here in our our media for quite some time. It's actually been in our news probably the last ten years or so, with with increasing levels of propaganda, and now now here we are.
0: Right. Well, let's move, let's move along and talk a little bit about, um, you've, you've worked in a teaching role, um, yes. within medicine at a, at a teaching hospital. And I think that's such a unique experience. I've heard a lot about things that are happening here, uh, with our local teaching physicians and some of our hospitals that I've, um, are, I'm connected with, but I would really love to see you kind of talk projecting forward, what we we're just talking about, what you are seeing as far as changes go in medical education, um, I mean, I will say, I think that the the large medical institutions, there so much trust has been eroded. In fact, I was talking to one of our senators on Friday about this. So much trust has been eroded in the, in the medical establishment. And I don't think that's gonna get better anytime soon. And unfortunately, I feel like you're probably gonna tell us that the way that we're training our future doctors maybe has changed significantly. Um, I know my husband has been in practice for 11, I think, 10, 10 years now. He's been out of residency 10 years, um, which is not a terribly long time. But some of these trends that we've been hearing, it's it feels like a completely different world than when he was in there. So tell us a little bit about what you've experienced.
1: Yeah, so I... I have taught as a clinical associate professor of medicine at three different medical schools during the course of my career. And uh, the changes changes I've seen recently, like over the last four to five years, have really, really worried me. I have to be careful with what I say because I am not going to implicate any one school. So I just want to be clear that I'm talking about medical education as a as a whole and what I'm seeing nationwide. So this is not specific to any one school mm-hmm. um, that I may have been affiliated with, but from my own personal experience, the students coming in the last four or five years, you know, we have, we have many good students. So I don't want this to all be negative either, but we have a number of students who have very much come through the CRT training and the kind of the woke ideology platforms. Um, through high school and through college. And when they arrived to medical school, we could see a difference. So many of the students came in really with a different agenda, I think, than than we did. When we, we, my generation went to medical school, it was all about the patient and what we can do for the patient and uh, taking the best care possible of that patient, regardless of other pressures on you. Now, it seems like it's really turned into you must follow the certain narrative that is, you know, that we're seeing play out in society and the kind of the woke ideology. And um, the students are having a very hard time tolerating any sort of perspective that doesn't fall into line with the narrative that they want us to teach and want us to follow. So I know that sounded a little vague, so I'm gonna give you an example, several examples actually. So I, at one of the schools where I've taught for for a long time, I we had a discussion on racism, and that was a topic that the uh, that the school had picked, and I didn't pick it. But our goal was, as facilitators of these discussions, is to make sure that students are seeing things from from a variety of perspectives. So I was, you know, I was I was moderating a small group discussion, and. The students had a, a dialogue back and forth, and it was a very woke dialogue, and that was fine. That's freedom of speech. That's absolutely fine for them to have at that discussion. But again, my job is to be sure they've covered the the topic from a variety of angles. And I realized towards the end of that discussion that not once had we ever mentioned Martin Luther King. So I did. I paraphrased Martin Luther King. I said something to the effect that you know, there's another perspective out there that I want you all to think about. And that's that we all have a skin color. You know, some of us are pink, some are more brown, some are more black. And that the skin color that we have shouldn't matter in this perspective with regard to what we, we think of someone, what should matter is their uh, their heart, their actions, and their character. So, so the perspective says that we shouldn't think of people by their skin color, but by the way they behave and by their actions. And that was pretty much the extent of that conversation. It wasn't, very lengthy one it was just me presenting a differing perspective to what was being discussed ultimately there were complaints against me by the students for having quote unquote mistreated them by telling them a perspective that had caused them harm and trauma (laughs) and i just have never never experienced anything like that before where students are unable to tolerate just differing perspectives and have a dialogue like we used to do, even, you know, even 10 years ago, we could have a dialogue and disagree with one another. We're seeing this play out nationwide, and we're certainly seeing it play out in the classroom. Right. Where well, we have a
0: and there was a there was a situation in our local medical school that made the national media not terribly long ago, where a student kind of bragged for lack of a better term on Twitter that a patient made a comment um, about the pronoun. Now this was a, a female who identified as a female and the patient made a comment about why did she have pronouns on her badge essentially. And she bragged about basically intentionally making a needle hurt more for that patient over that situation on twitter
1: yeah i saw that Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that was local to us and and unfortunately it seems like the university kind of brushed it all under the rug and you know maybe there was a um a small reprimand but nothing significant and and in the conversations i've had with some of the physicians that are teaching at that same hospital, they are livid that there was not more um, th- that happened over that because, I mean, as a physician, you're gonna deal with really, I mean, people are incredibly stressed. There's very difficult decisions that have to be made and so forth. And in a situation if that is pushes someone over the edge, then I can only imagine what an irate patient's family that is upset over, yes, maybe things that are out of your control, but taking it out on you, which certainly happens as a physician, especially in a hospital situation. What what is what might that future doctor do
1: to in that situation? And anyway, so that's just another well, I, yeah, example. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. And I, you know, so I told my chairman with this particular situation. I said, look, if I had, if I had told the students that they have to think X top you know perspective x and if I tell them then that their grades will be you know marked down if they don't agree with me then by all means you call me into your office and we have this conversation so but I didn't do that I simply presented differing perspectives that they all should be aware of and and MLK is not a tiny perspective right that's a right like a like I happen to to love MLK's ideology and and that's how I grew up but my perspective shouldn't matter what should matter is what the students that the students are able to see differing perspectives and they're really not able to tolerate that right now. The other complaint that I had against me was had to do with the COVID-19 vaccine. It was, it was just rolling out. It was in December of 2020. And my students, as we were socializing, we were just socializing at the classroom level. And they asked me what I thought about the vaccine. And I, so I wasn't lecturing on it. I didn't know enough about it. I just was, I just began to think out loud. I said, you know, I said, it's new technology. I hope it works, but I'm worried about the biodistribution. I'm worried, could it cause immune problems? I'm worried, could it, where does it go in the body? What else does it do? Mm -hmm. So I was just critically thinking the complaint against me about that was that I had told them it might not be a hundred percent safe and that had caused them trauma and pain. Oh I'm sorry, but nothing is hundred percent safe and aspirin is not hundred percent safe. So we really need to have students who can tolerate critical thinking, be able to think outside the box of what they're being presented with and really, you know, just be able to think on their own. And the system is really pushing them into this idea. I, I don't blame my students. They're nice people, but I, I blame the system for pushing them into this, this um, teaching a dynamic where they feel like there's only one narrative. And if anyone has any differing perspectives, they just can't tolerate it. And I, for all the reasons you were saying, when they're out in the real world and there is a variety of things happening and it's stressful and, and you know, people are very emotional sometimes, obviously, when when medical emergencies are happening and things, you, you have to have people who can who can roll with a variety of different viewpoints and make that situation better for that patient. Right. Um,
0: well, and and one thing that we talk about a lot is how, because of this, and certainly, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more as far as the, there's only one way. And we talk about the science now and that type of thing. The What this narrative driven training creates is an erosion of the art of medicine, which is where that critical thinking and discourse and Let's figure out the best way and what's your perspective and what's mine. And we might not agree, but maybe we can come up with even something even better together. When we stop doing that, we've lost the art of medicine. And and when we when we've lost the art of medicine, arguably we lose the science of medicine as well. And that's not good for the patient nor the doctor. And so that's um a, a, yeah. a primary yeah. concern that I have and you know, and talking with many physicians that, you know, that they have, that we're not teaching critical thinking and figuring this out. We're teaching flow charts and the top-down approach. And, you know, a lot of people ask, and, and I would love your perspective on this too, you know, why why haven't more physicians stood up to the one-sided narrative and at least consider that maybe there's another way, or maybe this was not the best approach, or maybe we should look at this differently and i argue that some of what you're talking about is just that that in medicine you are continually elevated but only as much as you adhere to whatever is one step above you and so it creates this um the it creates this dangling carrot all the time no matter how, what level you rise to and the, it it really it's it becomes very corporately minded versus science and art driven. And it's very difficult to explain. Sometimes I think how this mental load and all the ways that doctors hands get tied happens, but it's, it's very, it's very true. And it makes it very, very difficult to break out, but I would love your perspective on, on that as far as how physicians are threatened from every end. If you are to kind of, to go against this, one way that we do everything.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, I definitely see it starting at the medical education level. they're they're being trained to to listen to the narratives, right? And unfortunately, the the big pharma and the big tech and all those, and your employer are now very, very large and looming, and they're in the room with you during those patient encounters. Uh, and they're there with you during the training. So, what you're saying is absolutely true. You know, the students that dare question anything about this narrative are are slapped down, right? From a very early stage now is, is what I'm seeing in the the medical system, and as they progress then through their years out into practice, that's that's only going to worsen because they have already been trained to to be this way, um, to you know to listen to what is being fed to them and to not not think. In many ways, or if they do think to keep their thoughts to themselves and not rock the boat. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I do want to, um, I do want to just sort of throw in the tie, the connection with what my mom experienced too, because what happened with me as a result of, of the complaints I mentioned, and there was another complaint, um, Again, while we were socializing, the students had asked me how my week had gone in clinic, and I I told them I said I'm seeing one devastated teenager after another. Their mental health is just horrible. They're suicidal. They're cutting. They're they're depressed. I said I really feel strongly with the data that we have now that we need to look away from socially distancing and isolating these kids, and we need to start um, to start thinking about other ways that we're going to keep our more vulnerable safe from this virus. But we know the kids are not at, at any significant risk from this, but we are causing them harm from the masking. So, my mentioning of that as well caused them trauma and pain. <laughs> so, again, it just speaks to this idea that that we we can't have any sort of discussions outside the box. I ultimately was was pulled from my teaching. I was disappeared from the classroom over this, and um, I'm not going to get into more details about it. So, you probably don't want to hear the whole long-winded part of this. But the bottom line is, I. Literally was was pulled away and disappeared. And my mom relates similar experiences under communism. When anyone who had a dissenting opinion, she saw professors be removed from their classroom, from their from their teaching. One one professor was removed for teaching genetics. Um, hmm. At a and she went to the school where they did the famous pea experiments, the you know pea experiments, the green peas with the genetic Mendelian genetics. That's where they did their research genetics was not allowed to be taught at that particular school as communism you know came in and the professors were ushered out so so what i'm seeing is not just um it's not just i'm worried i am like full on every alarm you can turn on concerned about what's happening everywhere in the system uh to to speak more about why Colleagues are not speaking out. This the same system is pushing against them. There's a increasing. There's like there's a cage around all of us, and it's kind of squishing us as the walls close in. And you know we're being threatened by employers by um, not not so much the pharmaceutical companies directly. They have no direct threat towards us, but they are very much in control of the regulatory agencies, and those have. Uh, control, full control over physicians' licenses and over physicians' uh, board credentials. Mm-hmm. And so we're very much being squeezed and pressured to do what the system is telling us to do and not necessarily to act in the interest of the patient in front of us. Right. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Telling a little bit um, as we close up, I know there's so much we could talk about um, yes. your experience with children and, you know, the. Narrative from the beginning with closing down schools and masking kids, and you know, oh, we don't ever go anywhere anymore, and it's okay that you don't see your friends. We kept hearing over and over again how resilient children are, and from the beginning, that didn't sit well with me. Anyone that knows us well knows that we kept our our four boys' lives as absolutely normal as possible during the entire time. Um, but tell me would you agree with that have our children been that resilient or have there been devastating effects on our kids throughout everything that the decisions that we've made as adults over the past two years
1: yeah the the decisions that were made you know looking back with the the lens of of knowledge of data now have been absolutely devastating to our kids' mental health it's it's just terrible you know like you, when this virus rolled out, I'm sure that those first few weeks and the first month or so, we're, we're all looking at this with horror. And I, I was thinking, you know, we're just going to die because if you follow me around the clinic all day, you know, that in a pediatric office, you know, kids sneeze in my face, they cough in my face. You know, I'm pretty much covered in the germs of my patients by the end of the day, right, as a pediatrician. And so, I was pretty sure this thing was going to just kill us with everything that was coming out in the news. And, and then as, as I began to crunch numbers, you know, yes, it's been a terrible virus for some people and I'm not trying to, to downplay that, but for the kids, the kids were fine in terms of this virus. They have statistically essentially a 0% risk of, of death from this virus. And what I began to see were that the, the, the masking and the social distancing and the isolation are just devastating on the mental health of our, of our kids. And, and mostly the kids ages like nine, 10 and up into their teen years. So we already had a mental health crisis in America before this pandemic ever hit. And we could talk about that in another topic, if you, or another segment, if you wanted someday, but, but we already had a mental health crisis. The kids were already filling our emergency rooms and they were already suicidal and they were already depressed and anxious and cutting and, then the social distancing and the isolation that we we put them through just plummeted, many of them off a cliff. And so I was seeing kids, I was seeing up to six or seven a day, a day in my office, right around like the, towards the end of 2020, early 2021, just profoundly depressed, profoundly anxious. I had kids coming into the office just, I have memories of that from like the early months of 2021, where they just were sitting in front of me, visibly trembling. And I, I would say to them, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what can I help with? And they just said, I'm not scared of you, but I'm scared to be away from my house. They were, Mm -hmm. and as I took the history from these kids, they were telling me that they had not even left their house in the year and a half or so of the pandemic they hadn't even gone outside, some of them, because they were afraid that they would catch the virus from the air in their backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't know, they didn't know how viruses are transmitted. They didn't know that you don't just catch this from your backyard grass and air. You know, I had a number of them that came in like that, just, just beyond, you know, beyond distressed in terms of their mental health. And I had days where I would drive home crying because I was so upset with what I was seeing. You know, our emergency rooms filling with kids, the kids so devastated in the office. There was a a little 10 year old that came in. I, he just sticks out in my head because he was just the nicest little kid sitting there waiting for me in the exam room. And I said, Hey, how's your summer going? And he said, Oh, it's terrible. And I said, what's, what's going on? I said, aren't you hanging out with your friends? And he said, I don't have any friends. I don't have any friends. I heard that over and over again from these poor kids. I don't have any friends. And, um, you know, and we now know, and we knew then too, that, that they were not going to be killed by this virus. Sadly, what was happening to them was a result of the measures that we had put into place without adjusting those measures as we went along and had more data. Um, so how well, we get our kids mental health back it's going to take a lot of effort because these sure. kids have lost two years of their of their lives i also this, think about know?
0: the the pressure that we put on them as adults to we we were putting so much pressure on kids to protect their grandparents or their fill in the blank that you know it became their job to make sure that nobody got sick and that kind of thing and i think about that pressure even as an adult and think about that on a poor eight, nine, 10 year old, like you said, especially where they're in that transition of be, you know, beginning to, to understand how the world works a little bit more. But for while their brains are growing into that new space to, for the first thing they're introduced to is having all this pressure to be the protector that uh, they were not designed. Kids are not supposed to be the protector. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we, we put yeah. so much pressure on them um, and like you said, fear and, oh, you can't go that close or don't touch your friends and you can't, you're too close. You got to move back. You know, you're going to make somebody sick, all of that kind of thing. Um, and the anxiety and fear that that created, um, it, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking they, to me. They,
1: they grew up in absolute fear. Many of these kids grew up in just absolute fear and terror. And for, for so such a large percentage of their life, you know, a 10 year old, two years is a huge percentage of their life. Right. Yeah. And uh, during a developmental stage and the kids I saw coming into my office, whose parents had, you know, had parents had made different choices, frankly, like you're describing with your family, those kids were healthy still. I wasn't seeing that same distress, you know, that same emotional distress, but I was seeing it in the kids who, who, you know, I was seeing kids who wouldn't take their masks off, you know, as we got into the stages where, you know, yeah, they wouldn't take their masks off. And I, I was a firm proponent of taking your mask off. You know, I began to get to the point where I would tell parents that, you know, we, that we could wear it for their comfort, but I was a proponent of them taking it off. And some of these kids just would not take it off. And it was like, it was super glued to their face. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: And I think that's still happening. I've actually recently heard of, a, of a, um, an acquaintance whose child, insists on still wearing, like a a younger elementary age child will, has to wear a mask on the chin everywhere they go. They don't wear it on their face, but it's like a comfort thing being on the chin. Um, And I'll also say in March, um, during my kids' spring break, we were on a trip where very, an international type situation. So people are from all over. And it was fascinating in a not so great way to me how many kids I saw wearing masks when their parents were not. So my assumption in that is not that the parents are requiring the kids to wear the mask while the parents are not wearing the mask, but instead it's it's a comfort thing for the kids. It was really surprising to me how much of that I saw. And um, and
1: I think, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah,
0: no, you're Uh, fine. I just, I think it's, it's just... We've got to learn from everything that's happened in a way to help us to move forward and know, understand how much detriment has happened to the kids in particular and young adults and mental health. I mean, uh, we could go on and on, right, with the um, increase in, in mental health issues and addiction and that kind of thing and our young adults as well. But, um we've got to realize we cannot put this pressure on the kids. So.
1: Yeah. And I think the for the parents perspective too, there's nothing, there's nothing a parent fears more than, than something happening to their child. Right. So the fear that was put on the parents too, with these kids, but we have to just be sensible about it. You know, the, you know, you, kids wearing masks on their chin. What's, what's that doing? Right. Kids even wearing the masks and then touching one another or, you know, we just saw all this stuff that anyone who understands germ theory knows that this makes no sense. So as adults, we've got to to be sensible, sensible and logical and say, look, you know, you just let everyone hug, but now you're making them all still wear a mask or, you know, just some of the stuff doesn't make sense. Kids touching their masks and then touching, you know, one another. It, obviously, if there's a virus there, it's going to be transmitted. You don't need to have a mask on. That mask doesn't magically stop anything from happening. Right. Right. And so we just lost our common sense, I think, and, and science, we lost science.
0: Yeah. Renny, there's so much that we could talk about going on. I've so appreciated you uh, (laughs) hanging out with us today. And I would love for you to come back on and talk more about, um, you know, what you're seeing, uh, you know, in medicine and so forth. There's so many topics we could cover, but I'm very much appreciate you and your, your willingness to, to speak out and, I think you're sharing so much of what we hear from from many of our physicians that um, are going against the grain, whether they're able to do that in an outspoken public way or not. And we're very grateful for those who continue to think critically, to um, stand on their training and not just what they're fed and to treat their patients. So. Thank you for everything that you're doing, and I look forward to having you back again soon.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you.